congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, how many churches have you attended? How many different congregations have you visited? I imagine on average most of us have visited 10 or maybe more churches during our lifetime. And even here in Linwood, if you look in the directory, you will find that there are eight different churches uh, that you can visit. And when you might be asked by your friends or family, what church do you belong to, you would rightly say, I belong to Linwood United Reformed Church. But you could also answer that question, what church do you belong to? You could answer that question by saying, well, I belong to the church of our Lord Jesus Christ. The fact is, there is one church. There is one church that we are going to be considering today. And just so that we don't become confused, we are not talking about different congregations. We are talking about this one church, the universal church of our Lord Jesus Christ. Salvation is found in this sacred assembly. The church is sometimes called a temple, a holy structure made up of living stones, built on that one cornerstone, as we read in Ephesians chapter 2, the cornerstone of Jesus Christ. The church is also compared to a body with various members, diverse in their gifts and abilities, but united in Christ her one head. We also read of the church compared to a flock, a gathering together of of sheep held together by the good shepherd and called into good pastures. The church is also called a family, united as brothers and sisters with one father and one elder brother, our Lord Jesus Christ. The church is also called the synagogue, It is the ecclesia, the gathering together of God's people called out of the world and called together in him. Since we read in Hebrews chapter 10 that we are not to forsake the gathering together of God's people, it follows that we should know what it is when we talk about the gathering together of God's people. So today we are going to begin our series on the church by looking at this theme. Jesus Christ gathers his one church out of the world. Jesus Christ gathers his one church out of the world. Now to be very clear, I'm not saying that every congregation is the same. I'm not saying that it doesn't matter which congregation you attend. We are going to be dealing with the marks of the true church in a few weeks from now. But today our focus is specifically on this point. Jesus Christ has one bride. Jesus Christ has one body. He has one group of believers, one flock that he gathers together. In the first point then, we are going to be looking at the makeup of this one church. Where does the church come from, how is it gathered, and how is it united? We confess this, that we believe a holy Catholic church. We believe that there is a church, and this church is one. The church is united in that it is chosen, it is sanctified, it is sealed, it is gathered by our Savior Jesus Christ. Lord's Day 21 puts it like this. We believe that there is a sacred assembly gathered out of this world from the beginning until the end of this world. The church is defined as a group of people that Jesus Christ is gathering. The work of the church, of the gathering of the church, is the work of Jesus Christ. 
Matthew 16 puts it like this. I will build my church. Who is building the church? It is the Jesus Christ. He is the good shepherd. He is the master. He is the owner who builds the house. This community is gathered out of all nations. It is one group of people gathered and saved by Jesus Christ. So how many churches are there? You could rightly say that there is only one church. If the church is the group of people that Jesus is saving, and he is saving one group, it stands that there is and remains only one true church. There is not an Old Testament church and a New Testament church, but one church gathered from the beginning of the world until the end. This church is gathered from all nations at all times and from all people. Isaiah 49 teaches this, I will make you a light to the Gentiles to bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And even as Jesus Christ sent out his apostles to be his witness in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. This gets at the heart of what we call the Catholicity or the universality, the, the church being one. Now, when we say that there is a, a Catholic church, we are not uh, saying a Catholic in the sense of Roman Catholic, but rather uh, a little c Catholic, meaning universal or ecumenical church, that there is one sacred assembly of God's people. The universal aspect of the church means that it is gathered by Christ from all tribes, tongues, and languages, beginning in the garden and ending when Jesus Christ returns on the clouds of glory. As Abraham was promised in Genesis 22, all nations will be blessed by your seed. So when we look at the church, we find that there is no nation that is excluded. There is no time period that is void. Although it is true that the Old Testament saints were looking in, were, 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 were trusting in a, a promised Messiah who was to come, and the Old Testament saints were predominantly gathered from the Hebrew people, the fact remains that they are saved by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. And now in the New Testament era, the church is, is predominantly made of Gentiles who believe in the name of Jesus Christ who has come. The fact remains we are united and the church is one. We find this union in our scripture reading in Ephesians chapter 2. If you'd like to look with me at these verses, proving the unity of God's people. Ephesians 2, Paul says that the Gentiles, the Gentile church, the Gentile believers who were once far off have now been brought near by the blood of Jesus Christ. Jesus broke down that wall of separation which separated the Jew from Gentiles, created in himself a one new man, so making peace through his blood. That's Ephesians 2, verse 15. And then back in verse 14, he made us both one. Moving on in Ephesians 2, verse 18, through him we both have access to the Father by way of the Spirit. Did you catch the point that Paul is making here? He is writing to both Gentile believers and Jewish believers. 
And when you look at the construction of the Old Testament temple, there was a very distinct wall that separated the Gentiles, that kept the Gentiles from approaching the presence of God. But Jesus Christ, in his, in his work, with the shedding of his blood, breaks down that wall so that there is no longer a separation between the Gentiles and the Jews, meaning that there is not a, a division or a separation, but now there is a unity. There is a, 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 a gathering together, a making of one, a bringing of peace. By this, Paul is, is clearly teaching that there is only one way to salvation, and that's in Jesus Christ. And those who are united to Christ by faith, be they Jew or Gentile, are made one in him. There is peace to those who were far off, the Gentiles, and peace to those who are near, the Jews. That is why we confess a one church a united church, because there is only one way to salvation, only one name given under heaven by which we can be saved. So to answer the question, how many different ways can people be saved today? Is there a different way for Jews to be saved than for Gentiles to be saved? Surely not. If there is only one way to be saved, it stands that there is only one church, the true church united in Christ by faith. No nation group is excluded. No, no group has a leg up or is at a disadvantage. Indeed, where two or three are gathered, wherever they might be gathered, Christ is present there. Jesus is building his church. And wherever God's people are gathered and pray in the name of Jesus, his church is there. Whatever nation that you might find in the face of this world, God has his people. So the church is being established. Praise God that Jesus is doing the work of gathering his people. But that is not the full extent of his work. Because not only is the church being gathered out of all nations from the beginning of the world to the end, this church is also being protected. It's being kept safe in the hands of the good shepherd. This is what we call the church preserved, or the preservation of the church. The whole, we read this in Belgian Confession 27. The holy church is preserved by God against the rage of the whole world. You see, brothers and sisters, Jesus Christ is not just gathering his church. He is protecting his church, preserving his church. Also found in Matthew 16, not only is Jesus building his church, he says the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The fact is, from the beginning, Satan has tried to snuff out the church, to strangle the seed of the woman. It is the devil's desire to extinguish the light of the church. Just consider the attack of Cain on Abel or Ishmael on Isaac or Esau on Jacob or even Herod on the children of Bethlehem. Satan is going to battle against Christ's people. Since he cannot touch Christ, he goes to attack Christ's people. 
And he wants to, either by way of physical persecution or by polluting the truth, to destroy the witness of the truth here on earth. We find this in Belgic Confession 27, giving us a reference to one such time period when it appeared that the devil was victorious. The example given in our Belgian Confession article is from 1 Kings 19. Now, children, you will remember that happened, what happened in 1 Kings 19. Uh, Jezebel, that was uh, Ahab's wife, Jezebel had gone to battle, to war, to try to exterminate all of the faithful prophets of the Lord in the land. And by and large, she was successful in this. To the point that Elijah thought he was alone. He was left. There was no one else. So Elijah prayed to the Lord. O Lord, take my life. I am no better than my forefathers. O Lord, give this world over to the powers of darkness. It was Elijah's conviction that there was no church. There was no saints. And he was the prophet, and he was alone. He was all that was left. So he prays, Lord, end my life. Give this world over to the devil. Jezebel has won. But unknown to him, the Lord reveals in verse, 19, in verse 18, the Lord had kept for himself some 7,000 who had not bowed the knee to Baal. So even here in a period which would, to all external eyes, be a period of most intense darkness and spiritual bankruptcy in the land, the Lord God preserved for himself a remnant. In this we find great encouragement. Because it may seem to our eyes that the church is losing. That the light is being extinguished. It may seem that the, the church is despised in the eyes of the world. But the fact is, there will be a church. Yes, it will be small at times, insignificant in the eyes of the world, but there will be a church. We find this in Acts 14, verse 17, where Jesus said, I will not be without a witness. There will be a witness to the truth on this earth until Christ returns. Jesus said the gates of hell will not prevail. It may appear that the, the armies of darkness are, are gathering and surrounding God's people. It may appear that the rising uh, tide of, of false teaching is sweeping away. But the fact remains no political power or spiritual principality will ever destroy the church on earth. Because it is Jesus who protects, provides for, and preserves his people. Now this is an incredibly comforting word. 
Some of you as parents or grandparents looking at the state of our country, imagining what it will be like in 25 or 50 years from now might be tempted to despair. Might be thinking, what kind of world will my grandchildren live in? Will there even be a church? This truth is what comforts. Jesus Christ is Lord of the church. Do you think that Satan is more powerful than Jesus Christ? Is it not true that he who is within us, the Holy Spirit, is greater than he that is in this world, the devil? Will Christ leave this world without a witness? Will he allow the dark hand of the devil to extinguish, to suffocate, to snuff the church? Surely not. Indeed, Psalm 46, God is in the midst of her, therefore she shall not be moved. Now we have to be clear, that does not mean that every congregation will necessarily be around in 25 years. Yes, congregations sometimes, unfortunately, close or or have to move. But the fact remains, there will be a remnant. There will be a church. Jesus prayed for this in John 17. He did not pray, take my people, take my my followers out of this world. That is not what Jesus prayed for in the high priestly prayer. What he did pray for in John 17 is keep my people in this world and keep them safe. Protect them, preserve them. Keep them safe from the evil one. This preservation, the preservation of the saints in a corporate sense, is very encouraging. Christ will have his witness, will have his light shine. Our Belgian Confession article puts it like this, the king of kings will not be without his loyal subjects. If Jesus is king, a king has to have subjects. So the militant church continues the battle. The church may be attacked by wolves from without or wolves from within, but Christ protects his bride. Did Jesus not tell this parable? The weeds and the wheat grow together in this world until the end. The seed of the serpent and God's people growing side by side until the great day of reaping. So this truth encourages us. Don't judge the success of the church by what you see on the news at night. Find comfort in the promises of God's word that Christ will not allow his bride, his church, his flock, his people to be swept away because the good shepherd protects his sheep. That brings us finally to our last point. Now that we have seen that the church is gathered from all nations, tribes, tongues, and languages, from the beginning of the world to the end, and Christ protects and preserves his people. In our last point, we look at what do the members of this church look like. 
Now we have already seen that the members of the church are not known by the color of their skin, by their family background, or the language which they speak. That does not describe them. That does not make a difference. What does mark God's people is this, spirit-filled holiness. That is how you can tell a member of Christ's people. So if you meet someone when you're traveling overseas or or talking to your next-door neighbor or talking to someone at work, you don't judge them based on the color of their skin or the language that they speak. You base them, you, you judge them concerning the condition of their heart. Are they a spirit-filled, sanctified follower of Christ? If they do, if they are, then they are a member of the same church that you are a part of. What unites you to them is greater than anything that could divide them. So in our reading from Ephesians 2, we find this, 2 verse 18, we all have access in one spirit to the Father. The spirit that lives in you is the spirit that anointed Jesus Christ, is the spirit that filled the apostles, is the spirit that loosed the lips of David, that anointed the prophets, priests, and kings in the past, is the same spirit that sanctifies, consecrates, and anoints God's people today. There is one spirit, meaning there is one church, Ephesians 4, one faith, one Lord, one spirit, one baptism, one faith. So when you look at the work of the spirit, what does the spirit do? The spirit consecrates us, he anoints us, he sets us apart for holy service. He dwells within us. He makes us fit temples of God and his presence. He sanctifies, he prepares us for holy service. The church is united in this, not in our bloodline, but in the indwelling spirit. It is this spirit that gives us our identity, our shared identity, and it is this spirit that gives us our shared calling. As Hebrews 12 puts it, we strive for peace and for holiness without which no one will see the Lord. So we share the Holy Spirit. The Spirit that dwells in you is a Spirit that dwells in me and is shared by all of God's people. It is this Spirit that anoints us and equips us to grow in a life of holiness and obedience. Our article puts it like this. The church is the holy congregation sanctified and sealed by the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 4 We are to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. So there is one faith, one Lord, one baptism, one church, one Spirit, and one body, the bride of Jesus Christ. The mark of holiness is what sets God's people apart from this world. To conclude, the church is not an organization built by man. The church is a sacred assembly built by Jesus Christ. The church is a gift of the Spirit. Joining it, as we're going to see, is an obligation, means that we're duty-bound to join the local church if we are a member of Christ's true church because he's gathering his church and uniting her in this world. 
May we all find our place in the holy Catholic Church, the universal church, the one church of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this great encouraging word reminding us that the church is your work and the privileged position we have of being in this congregation of Christ. We pray, O Lord, that we would continue to seek to pursue the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. We pray that as your people, we would have a great confidence in your work of gathering and preserving the church and that we would seek to use our gifts to serve in the body of Christ. In his name we pray, amen.